Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Joe McCormick and my regular co-host Robert Lamb is not with us today. He's uh, he's out on vacation on the day we're recording this. So uh, I am joined by a special guest for today's episode, which is our producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. What's going on, Seth? Hello. Happy to be here. Happy to be talking to our wonderful, wonderful audience. Uh, don't don't flatter him too much. Um, <laughs> now, so Seth, you've been on Stuff to Blow Your Mind as a guest before, once to talk about the sensation of free son, which is the the name for when you get uh, goosebumps and chills as a reaction to music. And uh, and of course, you're a music guy. You you play music. You record music. You I think you what what is it called when you make records? Are you a music publisher? Um, technically, I own a record label and I manufacture. Okay records. So however you want to phrase that in today's world, who knows, you know, because <laughs> we're so far mm. beyond the traditional label system and then streaming gets involved. So I, I, I could say those words. I am a record label and I manufacture records. I think it's technically you are a you are a disc lord. Yes, I think that's a good okay. way to put it. Yes. So as as a resident disc lord here, but mm-hmm. oh, but also also I should mention that you have hosted a number of music related podcasts, and I'm genuinely so excited because you've got a brand new one coming out. That uh, by the time this episode airs, I think you will have your first episode live. Is that right? I believe by the time this airs. At least two episodes will be live. Yes, yes. And depending upon when you listen to this, maybe three, maybe 12. Who knows? So tell me about the new show. The, the show is called uh, Rusty Needles Record Club. And um, it's a very simple concept, honestly. Uh, all it is, it's like a book club, but it's for music. That's, that's, that's really as simple as it gets. My um, ludicrous goal for this podcast is to listen to every album ever made. I know I'm not <laughs> going to do that. Like, that's, that's ridiculous. But that's my goal. And so the fun of that is that me and my guests, we uh, are one album per episode. Everyone's going to listen to the same album. And then we talk about it and we go on all kinds of tangents. We give it a quick review at the end. But honestly, what the show is, it's a surrogate for people out there who just want a, uh, a music friend, you know, someone who they can talk to about music and listen to a good music conversation and, you know, I've been in this place in my life, and I'm sure others too. Sometimes you just don't have a friend around to talk to about music. That's what mm-hmm. this podcast can be for you. If you're a lonely music nerd, as I've been, and I'm sure I'm sure everyone has been at some point in their life, listen to this podcast. It's for you. You know, I literally <laughs> made it exclusively for you out there. So, um, but that's what it is. It's a Rusty Needles Record Club. Find it literally wherever you find any podcast. I mean, in a way, that's sort of what all podcasts are, right? Yeah. Like, uh, sometimes I think of what is stuff to blow your mind. It's like if you, you really wish you had some buddies to talk to about science and goblins and, and medieval poetry, mm-hmm. here are those goblin friends. Yeah. No, and I honestly do think they, that podcasts in general serve a very valuable purpose in that in that space, you know? And sometimes – like stuff to blow your mind. They're genuinely informative, genuinely researched. My other show, Rusty Needles Record Club, is much more conversational, much lighter fare. But if you enjoy listening to my voice, and more importantly, if you really like music and music recommendations, 
hop on over. Give it, a, give us a listen. And uh, a, a big goal of mine, I don't think I've even told Joe this, I want to get Joe on so we can talk about some Neil Young. Oh. I know Joe loves Neil Young, and yet we've never had a full-blown Neil Young conversation. So you just start thinking about your favorite Neil Young album. Well, Neil Young, uh, for me, if you know anything about my my taste in, in uh, perhaps underappreciated movies of the weird sort, of the mm-hmm. kind we talk about on Weird House Cinema... Uh, you might better understand my love for Neil Young because he is both a genuinely wonderful rock musician with, uh, I love his singing voice. I love his guitar playing. I love his weird, uh, atypical creativity, but he is also just full of bad ideas for music. <laughs> yes. just poor, strangely realized, poorly thought out ideas put into practice with reckless abandon. And I love that too. Oh yeah. I know. And it's not just for music. I think it's for every piece of his artistic output. Like, um, didn't, let's see, I believe one of his album covers was taken with a game boy. <laughs> Do you remember that album cover? <laughs> I think it was the silver and gold one or something like that. I can't really that remember. Sounds right. Yeah. The, the anyway, game boy camera. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, what, what a wonderful idea. He has to be in some sort of record book for the only album cover taken with a game boy, you know, like congratulations to him. You know, he, he doesn't care. He does exactly mm-hmm. what he wants despite the fact that he is like a heralded, you know, very well-respected, very very critically applauded musician, you know? So congratulations to him for, you know, sticking to himself. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll we'll save that for the episode where where I come on. uh, Again, it is Rusty Needles Record Club. Right. Uh, So you can look that up wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, But for today's episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, Seth, you're a music guy. So I thought uh, we got to talk about music of some kind. It's October here Mm -hmm. on the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast. It is the most hallowed time of the year uh, for us where we we talk about all things uh, spooky and monstrous and, and uncanny. So we got to talk about some uncanny melodies. Obviously, the place we had to go today is to talk about horror movie music. And I also recognize that we are doing, uh, we're currently doing a great injustice that Robert wasn't here for this conversation mm-hmm. today. So we may have to revisit the subject in some, in some episode later on in the, in the month or something like that, because I know Robert loves horror movie music. He's got tons of uh, interesting thoughts about it too. So, yes. so this may be something that we'll have to like continue as an ongoing conversation and, and follow up from this episode with him. Absolutely. But before we get into any of the the real mysteries about scary music and and horror movie tunes uh, that that I wanted to be the meat of the episode today, I was wondering if we could kick off by uh, exploring a a kind of strange thought I was having earlier. I I don't know if this is is an insight or if this is just sort of like me staring at my toenails and thinking it's interesting, but maybe you be the judge. So I was just thinking uh, the other day, about how music is extremely important to the experience of pretty much all modern cinema, not just as a pleasurable enhancement to the drama of the film, but as one of the techniques that makes the experience of moviegoing feel beyond the power of regular observation and cognition. It's one of the things that makes watching a movie feel like you have superpowers. Um, so to explain that, because modern film has high definition video and audio uh, and, and modern editing techniques, I've talked about this before, that I think modern film very much feels like observing real life. In the words of the character Professor Brian Oblivion in the movie Videodrome, 
The television screen is the retina of the mind's eye, and what takes place on that screen emerges pretty much as raw experience for the viewer. Watching TV or watching a movie is, in many ways, as realistic as observing real life. It, it certainly feels that way most of the time, unless you unless something breaks the spell and you get distracted. Mm. Which which um, ultimately leads to a few things you guys have talked about in uh, episodes in the past, like. Um, why you cry while watching a movie when it's like, oh, I know this is fake. There's no part yeah. of me that thinks these are real people experiencing anything close to reality. And yet I'm feeling a real emotion. I'm feeling sad. I'm feeling scared, perhaps. Yes, yes. So the illusion is so strong that it becomes raw experience. It's, it's as if you were experiencing it yourself, unless, again, the spell gets broken because, I don't know, your phone rings or something. You get distracted and suddenly you realize, oh, yeah, this is not real life. The boom mic um, dips into the screen. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, that's another thing. Like, uh, like shoddy or filmmaking techniques can also break that spell. Mm-hmm. But also, modern filmmaking techniques uh, create a simulation of raw experience that contains information that tends to give the viewer insights that are not possible when observing the natural world. Uh, so just uh, some, some very simple examples. Think about the way that editing and camera work can draw your attention automatically to details in movie scenes that will be significant in understanding something about a character's personality or, or maybe through uh, foreshadowing by highlighting something will automatically uh, suggest to you objects or statements that will later become very important to the plot. Mm -hmm. Uh, So think about the information content implied by a zoom in on a pair of scissors on somebody's desk or especially if it's in a horror movie or a flashback of a character saying, I hope we meet again soon. Uh, And so when compared to viewing reality, the viewer of TV or film has a sense of precognition or extrasensory perception. The drama that you watch happen on screen unfolds as raw experience, but it's also imbued with this extra layer of godlike knowledge and insight that's not available to you when you're just observing mundane reality from a fixed perspective. And also not available to the others who are supposedly living in this world that we're observing. Right. So, so yes. for example, we, we do have this omniscience of where we, we know information that they don't know about each other, like as if we are a god looking in on their lives. It's, it's similar to reading a book where you can kind of see inside someone's mind and you can feel their own thoughts and et cetera, et cetera. It's very similar to that in that uh, – let, let's take it to music for a second – if we're watching Jaws and we hear the Jaws theme start up, the ba-dun, ba-dun, we as the viewer, we know the shark is coming. They might not yeah. know that because they can't hear the Jaws theme starting. You know, right. he, he's yeah. sitting there chumming the water. He's he's facing the wrong direction. We're looking right behind him. We know the shark is coming, but he doesn't. Like, like we, yes. we are one step ahead. We are superhuman compared to these these uh, fictional characters on the screen. Yes. So that's exactly, yeah, you're right. This is where I was going with this. Music is another one of these modern cinematography techniques that contains super mundane information that imbues the viewer with a sense of godlike insight about what's going on. Mm. Uh, So, you know, in reality, you could be walking down a sidewalk alone on a windy day, or you can imagine that same point of view. Maybe it's a POV shot in a movie of somebody walking down a sidewalk on a windy day. 
with the Halloween theme playing. Right. And in the context of a movie, the latter almost certainly tells you something. It's something about what's going to happen in the future. So the music in a movie doesn't just set a mood. It does set a mood. But it also provides information that's not available to the characters. Um, Though I think it's also interesting that sometimes characters in movies behave as if they can hear the same music that the audience can. And I mean, assuming that it is uh, music that's not like coming from a radio on screen. And we'll talk more about the distinction in a minute, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think maybe in those cases, the the suggested effect is really that the character either somehow knows or believes they know something in an extrasensory or precognitive way. And the music sort of shares that super mundane knowledge they have or they believe they have with the viewer. This is a big word I used to have to use a lot. Um, uh, If anyone in the audience doesn't know, I've spent uh, a big chunk of my life uh, making uh, TV and movies as an animator. That was a big part of my life for about a decade or so. And then... um, one element we would have to pay attention to is the idea of diegetic versus non-diegetic music. Um, If anyone doesn't know, basically, uh, here's a very simple definition. Diegetic music is what is happening on screen. You can see someone doing something, it is making a noise, and you are experiencing it. So uh, Mm -hmm. someone turns on their radio, and you're hearing the radio, and that is the sound you hear on screen, that's diegetic music. Someone picks up an oboe and starts playing it, and you hear the music of the oboe playing, that's diegetic. So basically, there's a real logical explanation for where that sound is coming from. I think the word diegetic comes from the Greek for meaning something like narrative or something, doesn't it? Meaning that the the sound emerges from the narrative as opposed to on top of the narrative. Exactly. It's 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 that yeah. it's it's a part of this. It's it's not mm. um it's not a subliminal thing. It's a liminal thing. It's right there mm-hmm. in the front, you know? Yeah. So um non-diegetic is actually what we experience the most. Uh, Non-diegetic music is basically every score that you see. Pretty much when you see any movie, any TV show, etc., 99% of it is a score that is just kind of overlaid you know, with, with like the images and the dialogue and the, the sound effects. It's just this thing on top. Mm-hmm. But it didn't always used to be that way. So, yeah, yeah like the, the very first time a mainstream movie had sound it was this uh, Al Jolson film back in 1927. It was called The Jazz Singer. Uh, it's very famous. Um, I don't necessarily recommend it. It's got some very iffy subject matter. I don't think you uh-huh. should watch it personally, but it's very famous. It's something you watch in like you know film theory classes. Um, but then if we jump ahead six years, so like I said, that was 1927. Jump ahead six years, and the first mainstream film to use a traditional score was King Kong. That was 1933, mm. and that was scored by uh, Max Steiner. So so think about that. 1927, popularization of sound in movies. 1933, we've basically figured it out, and we're using the same technique mm-hmm. today. That's pretty remarkable for just six years. Uh, but right there in between, in that little six-year gap, we have Todd Browning's Dracula, starring Bela ah. Lugosi, which was released in 1931. I mean, a classic, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it can't be denied. I, I've, uh, I, I don't know how many times I've watched this movie at this point, but, 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 um, I think I've made this opinion clear on the show before, and I'm not the only person to think this. I've, I've read other people uh, saying that they had uh, feelings to the same effect. 
I think that the simultaneously produced Spanish language version of Dracula that Universal filmed concurrently with this, I think they were filming at night while Browning's uh, team was filming during the day, mm-hmm. is actually better, yeah. except for lacking Bela Lugosi. So if you could pair the Spanish language version with Bela Lugosi as Dracula, that would be the perfect form. Yeah, no, I fully agree. And yeah, yeah, this is something we could get into uh, on a, a whole other episode. But yeah, the short version is, is that the um, the Mexican production had the benefit of watching what happened during the American production and mm-hmm. learn from it and just kind of heighten everything, make everything just Improving a little bit better. It, yeah. It's just, yeah. It's it's a, it's a wonderful thing. I've seen documentaries about it. Like it's it's a fascinating subject. But uh one thing that actually both of those movies have in common, very little score. So little in fact that I would say no score. Um so there's only two moments of music in Todd Browning's Dracula, okay? There's uh, one point where they're at an opera house, and they're having like a, a scene at an opera house in London, and they're talking. And then in the background, you can hear um, some Wagner and some Schubert. And that's just like what happens to be occurring in the background in the scene, because they they are mm. at the London Opera House. This is what's happening in the background. And it does heighten the moment and kind of add some feelings to things. But that is diegetic, to bring it back to that word again. It is Mm -hmm. what is happening on screen. And so that's pretty much the only thing in the movie that has any music at all, period. And then if uh, you look at the very, very beginning over the opening credits before the film actually begins, there's a little bit of Tchaikovsky's Swan Lake which plays over literally the opening credits exclusively. And I believe that is two things. Um, One, it's kind of a holdover from just like the silent era where it's just like, oh, well, there's this thing on screen and there's no people talking. Got to do something. Here, just put some music up there, you know? Mm -hmm. But two, I also have read that um, Tchaikovsky's Swan Lake was also just very stock standard where it was just like, hey – we can just use this one. Like, this is just a standard song. We can stick in wherever we need it in the studio system. Um, I'm not sure how true that is, but I I find that fascinating because to me, when I watch that film, that moment from Swan Lake fits that Dracula opening credit sequence so perfectly that I can't see it being stock. I guess it's kind of like Always Sunny in Philadelphia, where their entire (laughs) sound library is 100% stock, you know, um, um, score stuff. And so when I hear it in something else, like a TV commercial, I get confused. That's a tangent. I'm moving back to to, to Dracula. Well, no, no, no. I know exactly what you're talking about. Like, I can't – it's uh, – I think the the part with Swan Lake is it's that creaky violin melody. Yeah. Am yeah. I right about mm-hmm. that? Yes. Well, maybe we can stop and just play a clip of that real quick. Good call. Okay, I can't hear that without thinking about uh, Todd Browning's Dracula. Right. Yeah, no, it, it has established itself. Like, I think of Tchaikovsky's Swan Lake as Dracula music more than I think of it as Swan Lake music. Clearly, yeah. it is made for Swan Lake. Anyway, yeah. but I've, I've, I've also seen Todd Browning's Dracula way more than I've ever seen Swan Lake. So, you know, it's, I'm sure it'll be different from person to person. But, but, but here, here's the point. Here's the point. So back in 1927, again, this is the jazz singer. Uh, That movie was very, very popular, but all of the music was taking place on screen diegetically because Mm -hmm. it was a musical. Everyone singing was singing right there in front of you. All the musical musical instruments was a stage. It was all about performance, stage work, the vaudeville scene, et cetera, et cetera. So 
this was understandable for a lot of reasons. Um, one, musicals were just very popular at the time. So that that was like a big reason why they made this film be a musical and why it was so popular just in the, the modern consciousness of, wow, the jazz singer winning all the awards, making all the money, all the people have seen it. But mm. also B, it's an excellent showcase of early sound and vision syncing together to in this brand new medium, which is the talkie. Because before that... Um, you know, obviously there was like a lone organist sitting in most silent movie theaters playing along, you know, with whatever's happening in the background. Or two, um, there was a brief period where they were actually playing records along with the film. But this was a very short-lived technology because uh, they would go out of sync perpetually. Because if you just even think about that, like even in your own world, you know, you uh, let's say you're trying to sync what's playing on your radio with what's happening on your television. It's just not going to quite always line up. It'll be yeah. close enough probably, but it won't. It's not going to be exactly right. So uh, I don't know if anybody – we got a lot of Mystery Science Theater 3000 fans out there. I don't know if anybody ever tried in that middle period to manually synchronize a Riff tracks right. MP3 with a movie that they were trying to watch it paired with. It, it was a pain. Yeah, yeah. Or, or even trying to uh, sync Dark Side of the Moon with uh, The Wizard of Oz. Always fun. <laughs> Always fun. I've I've spent many hours doing that. Um, but but anyway, it's, it's getting back to my point though. So 1927, these were musicals, and so that was like there was a reason for it all to be happening on stage. King Kong, it, it was a a, a a real score because they had finally figured out that that, that was okay. 1931, both the uh, filmmakers and the film critics did not think that the audience could understand where the music was coming from. They thought that we were too simple, <laughs> that like w- we would be confused. We would say, wait, uh-huh. is there a violinist behind them? Like, like where, where is this music coming from? Oh, they aren't alone. There's a musician right over there, <laughs> you know? Well, that is interesting. I mean, I wonder if did any, I mean, so obviously we don't think that now, but also we grow up watching movies that have non-diegetic music in them. Right. It, did audiences for, say, King Kong, like the earliest movies with non-diegetic scores, did they react with confusion, or was this pretty much metabolized instantly? I, I can say this, and I don't think this is proof of anything, but it is something that happened at the time. Um, I, I, I have, you know, I, I like classic cinema. Um, I have, I have this one box set of pretty much all of the um, old Laurel and Hardy um, um, shorts and features. And what's very funny is that in this collection, they have the original shorts, which much like Todd Browning's Dracula were released, basically, they're they're barely not silent films. You know, they are one mm-hmm. step past the silent film. You can hear them talking, but they had not figured out non-diegetic scores yet. And on the same in the same box set, they also have the re-releases that happened post-1933 where they actually scored them. And it's the same short. They just had to include this music because people had grown to accept it so quickly that these mm-hmm. long you know, periods of silences that were like, I guess, a part of the filmmaking for a moment were now seen as completely passe and old-fashioned. Old, old you needed that music. So they had to re-release all these shorts with, with a brand new score tacked onto them. Which, oh, yeah. Speaking of which... <laughs> uh, this ultimately happened to Todd Browning's Dracula as well. Um, oh yeah, it, I, so I think maybe the f- 
Could it be true that the first time I ever saw it in full, it was with the Philip Glass score? I think that might be true. It could be. It came out in uh, 1999. So depending upon when you saw it, yeah. it's very possible. It was after that. So yeah, and it's, I, what, I was not watching classic cinema as a child. <laughs> and so what's what's funny about that? So yeah, they they they, they rescored. Um, and by its official, 1999, Universal, they released a brand new version of Todd Browning's Dracula with a brand new score uh, made by Philip Glass. And well, I think it's very, very good. However, I do think it's very funny that they went from a film that had basically no music and almost mm-hmm. no foley and added the most maximalist, you know, perpetual arpeggio maker himself <laughs> <laughs> Philip Glass to score it. So it went from a movie with like almost no sound to a movie with like nonstop sound. And uh-huh. um, I love it. I, I actually, I prefer the Philip Glass version now. But um, anyway, that's that. <laughs> but I guess technically anybody can make their own score to Dracula. Yeah. Yeah. No, I feel that way. And I, I there have been a lecture. Oh, we could go off on this all day. We have so much to talk about. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll hold my opinions about air and La Voyage de Dan's La Lune for another time. <laughs> Oh, I think somehow we have actually talked about that on the show before. I think maybe, may, maybe in maybe the past in our... we were talking about music videos and that came up. Yeah. Oh, okay. But but the practice of scoring an old silent film with modern technology and modern sensibilities is a very fun practice. Many people have done it over the years and it's mm-hmm. it's fun. Yeah, yeah. One that really sticks in my mind, I remember I watched a pretty awesome re- modern rescore of, well, I guess it wouldn't be a rescore because this was a silent film to begin with, but of uh, Fritz Lang's Metropolis. Right. Yes. Uh, do you remember who did the score? I, I unfortunately do not. So mm-hmm. that is not a very useful comment. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry for asking. <laughs> But it's really interesting what you point out. Yeah, so the, this Todd Browning's Dracula is absolutely one of the, the foundational texts of, of horror cinema. It's like a lot of what horror cinema is goes back to uh, traditions that can be traced step by step back to the Universal Monster movies, the first of which, of course, was Browning's Dracula. Wait, I am right about that. It was yeah, the first one, right? De- yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. technically, we can go back to the silent era where we had like, you mm-hmm. know, Phantom of the Opera and stuff like that. But mm-hmm. of the talkies, we can definitely yeah. say it's Todd Browning's Dracula. Yeah. And yet now the idea of a of a horror movie without uh, not just some music, but like lots of music and very important music that's uh, that's critical in uh, set both setting the tone and establishing that sort of godlike feeling of of superhuman insight that you get when you're watching a horror movie. You know something that the characters don't know that contributes to the the sort of dramatic irony of watching the scene uh, that that gives you this weird superhuman ability. Uh, that's like absolutely crucial to what modern horror is. And if you have a movie that is very light on soundtrack or has no soundtrack, that's notable. Now that's like a a thing to point out about the movie. Um, I'm trying to think of examples. Does the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre lack music or does it mostly lack music? It's definitely very little. That's for sure. And and yeah, Yeah. it actually makes it feel more real. It makes it feel like a documentary because we aren't given this insight, we aren't given this extra layer of telling us how to feel, almost, almost hand-holding, if you want to look at it in like that kind of way, that like the, the mm-hmm. score tells us this way, this way, you know, right. <laughs> here's how you feel over here, you know? Well, that's another interesting question that uh, I don't know if I'm prepared to answer right now, but it, it is uh, fun to notice the difference between 
music that is highly emotionally manipulative and that's okay with us versus music that's highly emotionally manipulative and it makes us mad. Like when a TV (laughs) commercial has really emotional music and you're like, Oh, you know, get out of here with that. Right. Right. It's like perhaps that, uh, that, uh, dying, uh, pets commercial and is like a Sarah McLaughlin song on top. That's like very, very sad. Do you remember what I'm talking about? Uh, I, I wasn't thinking about that in particular. I think about like, I don't know when it's, it's like a commercial for a telecom company or something, and they're like connecting mm. people across the world with to to love, to share, and the happy music playing. I don't know. I feel like Folgers used to do that back in the day, too. I think they've grown uh-huh. past that. But in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, a bunch of Folgers commercials were very, like, family, emotional, but didn't, you know. Anyway, anyway, we're, we're going on tangents left and right here. <laughs> All right. Well, maybe one of the places we should go from here to uh, to think about the function of scary music in horror movies is to ask – what are some of the objective characteristics of music that is often subjectively associated with fear or used in horror movies? Um, And I think some obvious places to start, probably the most obvious place to start for me would be that uh, horror music or, or fearful music overwhelmingly favors minor key tonality over major key. In fact, I was trying to think of a single good counterexample of of a horror movie that had scary major key music, and I literally could not bring a single example to mind. Uh, the only th- my general feeling is that the only way major key music plays a plays a big role in horror movies is either in the sort of like normal part of the world before things get get bad mm-hmm. or to uh to automatically suggest a spirit of irony that there's a kind yeah. of mean sense of humor in playing major key music in a horror movie or perhaps sometimes as a bait and switch um yeah i, I don't want to give anything away so spoiler alert for the original friday the 13th part one if you don't want to <laughs> hear a spoiler you can, you can spoil that one <laughs> yeah everyone watch out uh, if most people will remember, at the very, very end of Friday the 13th Part 1, there is a final scare where uh, I believe her name is Alice. She's out there on the mm-hmm. boat. She's um, feeling all happy because she's killed uh, Mrs. Voorhees, the, the killer from that film. She's safe. She can see the cops arriving on the shore. And we have a nice major key song playing that's like, hey, everything's all right. The movie's over. We can relax now. We're safe. And then immediately, boom, it switches to minor. It switches to become very aggressive, much more like atonal, like stabs of strings and stuff, much like a, the Psycho score, perhaps. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, yeah, that shift happens when Jason jumps out of the water and grabs her. That last scare, it makes that major shift right there from, hey, everything's fine, major key. No, it's not minor key. Rah! <laughs> you know? And uh-huh. that's, that's obviously on purpose. Yeah, so that's that's that spirit of irony I was talking about. But I mean, like, can you think of uh, a single instance of a horror movie where there's music that is itself supposed to be scary and not like by irony or by contrast, and it's in a major key? I'm sure it must exist because there's a lot of movies out there, but I could not come up with a single example. I would bet, and again, I I, I don't know this off the top of my head. There have been a large number of repurposing pop songs into horror themes lately, like for the past, I'll say what, five, 10 years, Mm -hmm. I would bet at least one of those instances, they did not convert it into a minor key. 
So let's mm. say, hypothetically, I'd have to go back and check this because I haven't watched this movie a ton. Um, that f- that wonderful film Us by um, Jordan Peele, right? Yeah, yeah. He the the main theme is a, I've got inter- five on it. Exactly, yeah. it's an interpolation of this of the pop song I've got five on it. I bet I've got five on it is in a major key. I'd have to re-listen to the score to see if they they changed it to make it minor. But anyway, this is all speculation, so this is useless. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great example of of uh, pop music being used in a horror movie, by the way. The way it's woven through the whole score and comes but Yeah, yeah, really, a, a really film good. actually you and I both watched recently um, called – oh, gosh, what's it called? The, 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 it was on HBO Max. Malignant? Malignant, because they worked in <laughs> uh, Where Is My Mind by the Pixies on yes. multiple occasions throughout that score as both a uh, a theme – as well as just kind of like a, um, oh, perhaps foreshadowing in a way, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a common practice. So, I bet at least one time there have been one of those pop songs made into a horror score that was still major, but I definitely can't think of it. No. Um, there was a thing. You actually shared a link that uh, I had not seen before, but I thought it was really funny. It was a video that somebody put together of horror theme music that was modulated to be in a major key yes. instead of a minor key. So it had the Halloween theme and all this stuff. But I thought that the funny... So it's it's so obviously inappropriate that it is immediately and automatically hilarious. But I thought that the best one was the major key version of the theme from Saw. Oh, yeah. Um, which... <laughs> Sounded to me again to come back to TV commercials. Yeah, it sounded like a commercial. Uh, it sounded like music that would play in a telecom commercial. You know, while the narrator saying, "Together, we're connecting people across the globe because these are the moments that make us who we are." <laughs> no, I, I fully agree. I think my favorite was the Nightmare on, on Elm Street theme turned into a major key. That one was actually oddly beautiful. Um, mm-hmm. If anyone's looking this up, this was from a Slate article, um, I believe from 2015, where it was just um, theme songs in a major key are chillingly, hauntingly dorky. <laughs> and it was fascinating. It, it, it's, it's, it's an interesting couple of minutes you can spend looking at this for sure. <laughs> yeah, th- that was where the link, w- let's see, I, I just wanted, it was by a YouTube user called Muted Vocal. I don't know anything about them otherwise. Uh, me either. Although I did see that they, they've um, made videos going the other way where they have found uplifting, positive major key songs, switch uh-huh. them to a minor key, and th- then that's something, too. So, like, for example, the theme song to, oh, I don't know, I haven't watched this video, Jurassic Park or Big, you know? You take that that uplifting key, minorize it, suddenly it's scary, you know? Oh, oh, wait, I, I just thought of an example of a uh, of a major key pop song that I have always thought was incredibly creepy, creepier mm-hmm. than people uh, give it credit for and should be used in a horror movie. It's Rod Stewart, Forever Young. I think if you like listen to that song with the right frame of mind, it is the most unsettling. It sounds like, you know, something that would be playing while like a serial killer is preparing their instruments or something. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. And I, I, I could also see in the near future someone making a horror film, and that can be the pop song that's been interpolated into uh, scoring the uh, the new theme, you know? Uh, now, there are a ton of other um, musical features that we could identify as being common in horror movie music. One that pops up over and over again in uh, in scary music, not just in horror movies, but say uh, like it's big in uh, it's, it's on Black Sabbath's first album is the uh, the musical interval known sometimes as the Devil's Tritone. It's a, a series of three notes that uh, has a long, interesting history in music. I know 
Rob has gone into depth in, uh, on this in some episodes in the past, so I think I'm not going to rehash that here. Though maybe maybe Rob and I will come back to it at some point. Um, but yeah, it, clearly this one shows up a lot when you're trying to get people to think about demons. Uh, yeah, the, the the Devil's Triad and uh, the Devil's Interval, as it's sometimes known, these chords, I guess, and these intervals, I think they're going to play in later when we start talking about kind of like the internal, like subconscious, like logic and kind of like source of scariness. I think this mm-hmm. is going to come up again. So, so I'm, I'm going I'm to keep this in mind. I'm going to keep a pin in it. Okay. Uh, th- there's another thing that I was wondering about if if you have any thoughts on this is uh, particular instrumentation. Mm. You notice how horror movie themes, maybe less so these days, but at least for a long time, I feel like they tended to favor particular instruments, especially instruments that sound archaic to us. So like the pipe organ, the harpsichord. Uh, instruments that are not exactly thought of as like the most modern of sounds. Yeah. And I, I wonder if that's because it, for the same logic that generally associates uh, antiquity with spookiness, you know, like why are more horror movies set in an old house than a new house? No, I think you're absolutely correct. I, I, I think a lot of elements of storytelling are trying to convey something without saying it directly. And I do think antiquated things just seem more spooky because I think yeah. Either subconsciously or consciously, we recognize, oh, they're all dead. You know, yeah. like the terror of history. Yeah, there's a, the, the the past contains many stories, uh, and at any time to to bring back one of those stories is to invite the idea of ghosts or uh, or of uh, secrets maybe better left uncovered or something. Oh, definitely. I mean, think about um, The Shining, for example. Um, mm-hmm. In that film, uh, there, there, there's a, a very eerie use of 1920s big band music, right? You know, oh, to kind yeah, of like yeah. give this impression of otherworldliness and very spookiness. I'm sure in the 1920s, those were considered very upbeat songs. <laughs> but <laughs> when you hear it in that context with that story, it is very spooky. It's nothing but spooky. You know, I can't imagine being happy while listening to that music. Uh, we're definitely going to have to come back to The Shining in a bit because that's got some of my favorite horror movie music from uh, in, in multiple ways, from the, you know, the, the Wendy Carlos synths to uh, to some really good percussion stings in it that illustrates something I want to get to in a minute. Uh, Penderecki, yes. But no, we, we, I, I think from everything we're about to talk about, The Shining is like almost a perfect example of every kind of scary music. And yeah, we'll definitely get to that. Okay, well, so I get. Let's get right into this. There's a thing that I was trying to tease out uh, about how there there might be different types of horror movie music that uh, we can recognize patterns, but they're not all. It's not just one homogenous mass. That there are different types of music associated with the different types of emotions that horror uh, wants to conjure. And so uh, th- this will get into something that horror writers discuss a lot. It might be less familiar to people who don't play around in uh, such obsessive literary circles. But horror <laughs> writers talk a lot about the difference between horror and terror. And uh, they make the point uh, that these are two very distinct emotional states. They're not the same thing at all. And it's usually explained like this. I'll try to do the simplest version. Terror is the feeling of dread you experience at the anticipation of encountering something awful. And horror is the feeling of shock and revulsion you experience 
when you actually encounter it. So, you know, uh, if horror is you throw open the door and you see the monster, terror is the feeling as you creep down the hall toward the door, not knowing what's behind it. I was looking this uh, up, trying to find who was who the earliest person to articulate this difference. And it seems to me maybe the earliest uh, person to talk about this is the 18th and 19th century English author of gothic fiction, Anne Radcliffe, uh, who wrote about this in a piece called On the Supernatural in Poetry, which was published in 1826. It might have been published uh, posthumously, but uh, she wrote as follows. They must be men of very cold imaginations with whom certainty is more terrible than surmise. Terror and horror are so far opposite that the first expands the soul and awakens the faculties to a high degree of life. The other contracts, freezes, and nearly annihilates them. And I would say this remains the prevailing sentiment among horror writers these days, that that terror is the really prized emotion, that horror writers... Uh, generally think it is better to to be successful at making you feel that dread of anticipation and ambiguity of creeping up to the door not knowing what's behind it than just going for that you know like ah the shock and revulsion when you finally see the monster right no 100 percent. i i think i think most people would agree with that i definitely do and so concurrent with these two very different emotions that are elicited by by horror fiction and thus by horror movies, I think we can hear some extremely pronounced differences between the kinds of music that are usually used for each one, for terror sequences versus horror sequences. So I would offer as a sort of emblematic contrasting pair of examples, the Jaws theme versus the stabbing violins from the score of Psycho. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Jaws theme is, you know, the classic, the, the two-note progression, dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. I would say that is terror music to the core. You don't see the monster yet, but something bad is approaching. You can feel this sense of dread welling up in you, but you, you're not at the moment of conflict and confrontation yet. And also, uh, anyone, if they aren't familiar with the song or if they just haven't thought about it in a while, I think it's very important that the notes not only are getting faster, they're getting louder. It's, yeah. it's as if the song is approaching you. You, you are yeah. feeling the literal feelings of something getting closer, something getting faster, something coming right at you. And that's, that's what it's trying to evoke. And that's, I think, very successfully, it, it, it does it, you know? But there's also something that's genius about the Jaws theme, uh, and you know, uh, John Williams uh, often has an incredible intuitive sense of, of evoking concepts like this. Something about the Jaws theme suggests a, a form that isn't yet understood. That is, mm. you know, it almost suggests like something coming up from out of deep water that you can't see. Right. Uh, you you just know that there's this approaching menace. That something awful is coming out of the literally out of the murk, but you can't find its form yet. Hundred percent, and and I think that again goes right back to what you were just saying about um, the anticipation being far worse than the actual violence. It's it's the build up, and uh, famously for Jaws, it was because they weren't a hundred percent happy with the build of Bruce the shark, and right. um, I I think I, I, everyone would agree that that makes it even better. You know, uh, yeah, the movie's much better because you see less of the shark, right? Um, Though then again, eventually in a movie, you're going to have to confront the horrible thing, right? Mm. Or usually you're going to have to. And you got to have the right kind of music for that, too. Uh, though the the characteristics, the objective 
physical sonic characteristics of the music where the actual conflict happens, where you see the monster or the, you know, or the, you know, the killer jumps out with the knife. That is very different music. And, and again, I think the, the violins from psycho are a pretty perfect example of what, what form that music usually takes. creates mental pictures for sure like I, yeah. I, and, and perhaps it is because psycho has just become you know part of our shared dna of visual imagery you know and just cinema in general but mm-hmm. that sound with the violin feels like a knife stabbing you know and, and yeah. I, I don't know i i don't know if i can unmarry those sounds to come back to The Shining again, there's actually a, another thing that I think is a really great example of horror music in particular, meaning that moment of horror as opposed to terror. Mm-hmm. It's the uh, the rattling percussion that's used, for example, in the scene where uh, it, I think it comes up multiple times in the movie. But think about when Wendy is running up the stairs and she looks down the hall and sees the, the, the man in the dog costume and you yeah. hear that shaking, rattling drum beat. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, If we're ready to talk Shining, I'm ready to talk Shining. (laughs) Okay. So um, we're we're also going to go and bring this up to a a third kind of music in a moment, but I think The Shining will lead us there with something we've already talked about. Um, So terror music in The Shining is definitely the Wendy Carlo score. Think about it with like the opening credits. It's these big droning synthesizer, you know, things that are just building and groaning and like, you know, you're it's it's like the creaking of the trees in the forest. It's it's just Ooh, yeah. it's just slow and dull and it's coming, you know? And mm-hmm. then the horror music in that film, uh it's it's a, a conductor, his name is uh Christoph Penderecki. And he did a, a lot of the like, like picture the the, the shots where like um, you see Danny's face and he's like in revulsion and it's those very oh gosh what's what's the, what's the best word for I want to say violent strings that's what I want to yeah. say but it's 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 yeah the um, atonal strings that have very little rhythm to them and very little melody and they're just happening all at once that's very um, it, that that's very typical Christoph Panderecki and he's very very known for that and he's very successful at that uh, uh, Johnny Greenwood is a contemporary um, um, film scorer um, musician who uh, works in that Penderecki school no question about mm-hmm. it think about what he did for like um, there will be blood or stuff something like that mm. but um but anyway I think that's a really good uh, uh, difference between those two. Terror is the Wendy Carlos part. Horror is the Penderecki part. And now can we move into eerie music? Because I think that is shown very well in The Shining with something we've already mentioned. Right, right. So I think the two categories I just mentioned, I would say, are not even exhaustive of, of scary movie music. Both of these two tend to be used in sequences of heightened tension or, you know, you're you're really trying to build dread. There's also just what you might call spooky music or eerie music. And I think actually a lot of the most iconic horror movie themes fit more into this category. They're not used during scenes that that are at the height of terror or where you're feeling something terrible coming on. 
but rather they, they tend to play early in the film. They set a kind of uneasy mood that's, that's charged with otherworldliness. And, uh, and these tend to be more melodic than the other two kinds. And they tend to re- sort of recur as themes throughout. Uh, so I, I think of the, the tubular bells theme from the exorcist, I would put in this category. Uh, or maybe even the the main uh, Suspiria theme by Goblin in the mo- the original movie Suspiria. I was thinking a lot of um, the uh, nursery rhyme sing song from Nightmare uh, on Elm Street. I think that yeah. that has that eeriness. And to bring it back to The Shining, like like we promised we would, that's where I think all that 1920s big band stuff lives. All that is the eerie stuff, where there's actually nothing building about it. There's nothing violent happening from it. So it's not terror. It's not horror. It's just setting a vibe. And it's a it's a spooky, eerie vibe. <laughs> yeah, it, it invites you to uh, it invites you to a different state of mind. It, it just sort of invites you to a, a realm in which uh, otherworldly things are possible. I feel a lot of the, the eerie music sort of puts you in a mood to accept the supernatural elements of horror plots. Uh, this I, I love this kind of breakdown between terror into horror into eerie and like just you know I'm, I'm sure obviously we're still going to be missing some elements because the world is a multifaceted place but but with these three I feel like you can really break down most music in horror films and, and so I was thinking about a lot of my favorites so um, think about Friday the Thirteenth you know the famous like ki, 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 ma ma ma. That would definitely, right. to me, be uh, a, a terror because it's building, yeah. it's it's setting a tone, it's getting louder, it's 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 um it's foretelling what's about to happen. You know, mm-hmm. um, yeah. think about um, Dawn of the Dead, where uh, a lot of the Goblin synthesizer bits, you know. It's it's the terror. It's the building. It's it's the um, almost like um, almost like a machine out of control. It's going faster and faster, and there's a there's there's something happening in the background, and, and then all of a sudden there are these horror bits that uh, when the violence occurs. But again, getting back to major stuff. I feel like the like the mall theme song stuff counts as eerie in in, in uh-huh. the Dawn of the Dead films. You know the like all that stuff. Because we are in a place, and I guess kind of ironic too. It's it's ironic mm. that there are these happy songs playing that we're in a happy place, a shopping mall, and yet it's the end of the world, and these zombies are destroying everything and killing us. You know, totally. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. Anyway, I was just thinking about like all my favorite scores, and a lot of them kind of fit into these these places. And I also noticed, based on these distinctions between terror, horror, and eerie. I've noticed that a lot of my favorite scores are all, I think, in the terror realm. I think they're all that building atonal nonsense stuff. Like, um, I was thinking about the uh, Mika Levi score to uh, Under the Skin. I was thinking about the uh, Tom York score to the remake of Suspiria. Um, And I was thinking about the Colin Stetson score to Hereditary. All, all Oh, go ahead. 
Well, no, I was just going to say I love all three of these examples. Uh, yeah, you, you singled these out ahead of time, and I listened to them. And yeah, j- just excellent, excellent choices. And uh, they sort of have something in common, which is that uh, I don't think any of these are something you could really like hum the tune to. So they're not right. su- they're not really melodic. And and I think perhaps kind of we were talking about before about perhaps hand holding. I think perhaps the terror element of this three different kinds of music, the terror music does the least amount of hand holding when it comes to comforting you. I think it is intending mm-hmm. to make you feel uncomfortable. It is, and and I think all three of those I just mentioned, because there is no melody, because there is no rhythm, because there is no harmony, because there is no. There's no music, for for lack of a better word. It's mostly sound. Mm-hmm. It makes you feel uncomfortable because anything could happen. And I think that kind of lack of knowing what's around the corner, that uncertainty, that lack of the, 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 the world of the unknown is what makes a lot of people scared. And I think that, bringing back to the, uh, the Devil's Interval uh, and the Devil's mm-hmm. Triad that we mentioned before, a big reason I've heard why the Devil's Triad is so eerie is that because there's no logical next step for the Devil's Triad. That when someone plays uh. that note, you don't know what the next note's going to be. It could settle over here. It could settle over there. It's unknown. It's it's not part of our common linear musical thought so that, that 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 sense of the unknown, I think, is yeah. in general spooky. I, th- I think that's – I'm not making any new assumptions there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it, this was a big part of what we talked about in our the episode you and I did on Frisson, where right. uh, it, it was, it's clear that a big part of people's experience of and reaction to music is tied up in prediction. Uh, the, people's ability to predict what's going to happen next in music and the degree to which the music either uh, conforms to those predictions or breaks from those predictions is a major factor in determining how we feel about music and the reactions that it gets from us. You know, that when we listen to music, it is not a passive exercise as much as it feels like it. Our brains are always trying to stay one step ahead of the music and, and sort of think what's going to be the next note, what's going to happen next in the next bar. Mm. And so, yeah, I think uh, clearly music has a great power to unsettle us by denying us that predictive power uh, by saying, like, I'm not going to tell you what key I'm in. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So I wanted to go on to uh, the question of seeing if there's anything we can learn about why some of these objective characteristics of horror music feel subjectively scary to people. Uh, you know, why is it that horror movie music tends to have these features and not these? Why is it, why does it tend to be in minor keys instead of major, for example? And I think the answer in a lot of these cases is probably just going to be culturally and historically contingent as many things are. So like why are pipe organs so often used in scary horror movie music? Uh, I mean, I, I guess it's possible that somebody could make a convincing argument that there's some interaction between the objective characteristics of pipe organ sounds and our neurobiology. But I, I, I'm naturally kind of doubtful of that. I think that's probably just a result of random historical associations. But I think in some cases there could be actual deeper reasons, biological reasons, why certain things sound scary to us. And so uh, I was interested, has anybody written anything about this with regard to minor keys? 
Um, and I, I couldn't find a really solid answer here, but I was kind of interested by uh, what I did turn up. So, of course, minor keys in music are not just associated with fear, but with a whole range of negative valenced emotions, with sadness, with uncertainty, with ambiguity. Uh, apparently, this is a robust finding across psychology of music research. Um, but the question would be why? Like, why are minor keys associated with negative emotions, including fear? This appears to be a somewhat unsolved question, but there are a lot of hypotheses floating around. And uh, so I came across a couple of interesting uh, resources commenting on this question. One was a scientific paper that I'm going to talk about in a second. Uh, one was just a, a popular press article in NME by a music psychology researcher named Vicki Williamson. And she, in this article, argues that uh, negative emotional valence of minor keys is mostly cultural conditioning, but there may be some deeper, something deeper going on as well. And as one hint of associations between tonality and emotion being deeper than pure cultural contingency, um, she points to a scientific article that I thought was interesting. So it was one that was published in Current Biology in 2009 called Universal Recognition of Three Basic Emotions in Music. And this was by Thomas Fritz et al. And basically, this study exposed people of different cultures to music from other cultures with which they were previously unfamiliar to see if they could pick out the intended emotional qualities of that music. Um, so it, it compared, for example, uh, the Western popular music to the music of people of the Mafa culture, who are people who live primarily in Cameroon and Nigeria. And it turned out that Mafa people were able to pick out the emotional valence. And this was been between three major emotions. So happy music, sad music, or fearful music. Uh, they were able to pick out these emotions of pieces of Western music at a rate above chance, even though they were totally unfamiliar with it, uh, though their performance at recognizing these emotions was much lower than people who had a previous cultural familiarity with it. And I think you could take studies like this as perhaps evidence that some, certainly not all and maybe not even most, but but some of the emotional associations of musical sound are in fact neurobiological and, and common to all people. I would think so, at least to a certain degree. But then again, that's the kind of finding that's like, uh, it's like, it's interesting, but it's not quite enough for me to, to like fully conclude. Yeah, there's definitely like a, a universal biological association, but it's like getting there. So, so, so yeah, that, that seems interesting. Um, also not really related to today's topic, but uh, she pointed out something that I thought was interesting in this paper, which is that, uh, there, there was other research showing that pop music of the post 2000s apparently has more minor key tonality than pop music of previous decades. I think specifically of like the 60s. And I wonder why that would be. Yeah. Huh. I, I, I'm sure part of it is um, in all art, there's always actions and reactions. So mm -hmm. if you just get too much of something, artists are, you know, they, they, they feel very, um, very much driven to do the opposite. It's like, nah, -uh. <laughs> forget your cubism, <laughs> yeah. man. I'm doing this, you know. But um, I, I think we reached a similar uh, a points of view and similar kind of stances when we were discussing Frisson in a previous episode, which is that like it's really difficult to pin down the facts of music because it does feel so ethereal, so mm -hmm. personal, and the only thing I think we really have to like definitely establish as music is that 
sometimes other people feel the same way too about this thing mm-hmm. that I'm experiencing. <laughs> yeah. That's that's about all you can say about it. But 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 I think this is a good point. The the better than chance is something interesting about that. Yeah, so that would tend to suggest to me that there there might be something going on there. Maybe there is a deeper neurobiological association between certain types of sounds that we pair with certain types of emotions, and and that that could be approaching universality. But uh, I'm still unconvinced on that. I found another thing. uh, It was a study from 2014 published in a journal called uh, Musici Scienti, and this was called The Emotional Connotations of Major versus Minor Tonality, One or More Origins. Uh, this was by an Austrian researcher named Richard Parncut, who works on the psychology of music. Uh, and uh, I thought this paper was interesting just because it collects a lot of the existing hypotheses about why there are emotions associated with major versus minor key tonality. Um, so, uh, I'm not going to get into these in depth. And in fact, there's one that I honestly don't, I got to come clean. I do not understand I don't know <laughs> enough about music theory, but I'll try to explain the other ones as felt as well as I understand. So, uh, one of them just has to do with the concept of dissonance. Um, this is that minor keys contain more dissonance than major keys. So I'll try to make simple sense of this. And also I'm not like, I don't know a whole lot about music theory, but at least what I understand is that, um, Okay, when when you play any note, you play a note, within that one note, there are harmonics. And these harmonics, when you play a note, tend to uh, suggest what other notes you could play with that note and what it would sound like. Uh, you know, So a major key includes natural harmonics of a root note. But a, a minor key, or especially a minor third, is kind of somewhat dissonant. Uh, perhaps we can hear an example. So the minor third is a half step down from the major third, which is a, the major third is a natural harmonic of the root note, and the minor third is dissonant instead. It's, it's dissonant with that harmonic, so we find it less harmonically... Uh, harmonious. <laughs> and uh, and so maybe this one's kind of obvious, but it does need a kind of final connecting principle. Why is it exactly that harmonic dissonance is associated with negative emotions? I don't know that that's kind of hard to get under, but it just, that one feels very baseline natural that when you hear two dissonant notes, it does sound like something is unresolved or something is ambiguous or something is wrong. But how do we all know that? That's, yeah, that's, that's the real question. Yeah, yeah. So I think there, there's probably something very much to the uh, the fact that minor keys suggest more negative valenced emotions because they contain more dissonance. But that that yeah, it still leaves this second level question unanswered. Why is it that the dissonance is associated with negative emotions? Um, and maybe some of these other hypotheses have something to do with this. So the next one is alterity and markedness. Uh, so uh, in the abstract, he writes, quote, major triads and scales are more common than minor and positive valence is more common than negative. Major and positive valence are the norm. Minor and negative are marked others. So maybe it's just the fact that major tonality is common and normal, therefore we associate it with the good, and minor tonality is a violation of what's common and normal, a violation of the normal order, therefore we interpret it as bad. Or not necessarily bad, I don't know what you, yeah, negative negative emotional content. And then uh, thinking about what you said a, a moment ago about how um, post-2000s, 
songs in the minor key are on the charts far more often than they were back, let's say, in the 1960s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I do wonder if, if there's a need for that, if perhaps it has to do with um, just kind of the tone and vibe of the world at the time, if it has to do simply with trends. Maybe certain songs become inexplicably popular that are in a minor key, and others are, are just mimicking it. You know, I mean, they, it could be mm-hmm. so many things, but um, but yeah, but but not to be too negative towards minor keys. Minor keys are just as popular as major, you know? <laughs> they're, <laughs> they're great. Yeah, yes. they're beautiful, too. <laughs> Again, I'm not going to mention all these explanations, but one more uh, he brings up is uh, this is kind of an interesting idea that it that major versus minor key associations could have to do with speech. Um, there, it's been suggested by some people that there are ways in which major key tonality is more similar to typical speech or happy speech. And minor key tonality is more similar to sad speech. Uh, he singles out the idea that minor keys and sad speech both contain pitches that violate expectations by being lower than normal. Hmm. So in a minor key, think about hitting that major third and then versus hitting that minor third. The minor third is a half step lower than the major third. But okay, so it seems to me like some of the major minor stuff, it does probably have something to do with dissonance, dissonance being associated with uncertainty and ambiguity, and that being, uh, being uh, of course, associated with negative emotions. But there's still a lot of sort of uh, uh, unclear steps in the logic there. I, I don't know. It's, uh, th- I, this very much has my interest, but I don't think we fully understand it. Certainly I don't. Mm-hmm. But there's, there's another aspect here that I think is probably much clearer when you're looking for biological reasons why we might associate certain kinds of sounds or music with fear. And this would be uh, mimicry of sounds that are produced in our ancestral environment or by our ancestors themselves. Uh, So this is the the biomimicry segment here. Uh, This is probably not all that surprising, but it has been borne out by research. And, And the question is this. What if scary music works by mimicking sounds that our brains naturally associate with danger, i.e. human screams? Uh, So uh, I was looking at a paper by uh, Caitlin Trevor et al. from the Journal of the Acoustical Society of America, published in 2020. And uh, so the authors write as follows in their abstract. They say, quote, regarding fear, it has been informally noted that music for scary scenes in films frequently exhibits a scream-like character. Here, this proposition is formally tested. This paper reports acoustic analyses of four categories of audio stimuli, screams, non-screaming vocalizations, scream-like music, and non-scream-like music. And then they also uh, they collected information from people listening to these sounds about the valence, so the emotional meaning, was it positive or negative, and the level of arousal that they experienced in, in reaction to it. So what does this actually mean? What are the objective characteristics of screams that could be mimicked by horror music? Uh, Well, they write as follows. They say, quote, typically human screams are, okay, here you got loud. They utilize a wide range of frequencies. They're higher in pitch than one's average vocal range, and they have a high amount of roughness. Uh, And they say that roughness is a basic auditory phenomenon that is characterized by a coarse, grating, or harsh subjective experience. That that one's really fascinating to me in particular, because um, 
I think about um, a, a vocal performer straining to reach a note and not being oh, yeah. able to do it. I think mm-hmm. about um, obviously a real person screaming actually in terror and how they are, you know, not really in control of their voice. They're not trying to hit a note. It is that strain once again. And then I'm, I'm sure you've experienced this, Joe, and I'm sure many people, a- anyone who has used a program like Ableton or any of these other like, you know, MIDI style um, programs, there are instruments that you pop in that it's not just a standard like boo. It's not like a dial tone tone. You can see in the little wave that it's got a roughness to it, that it's got kind yeah. of like a um, almost like a disintegrating sound to it, a, um, a, a rasp, if you will. And yeah. that, those are always the spooky ones. Those are always like, you know, like the ancient organ number three, you know? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. So here I think we're starting to get into some some pretty interesting territory. Uh, and and this will connect to some other stuff we, I want to talk about in a minute. But uh, so for this study in particular, the authors uh, found that. Oh, so first of all, they they isolate exactly the characteristic you were talking about. I think because they say, well, the other common characteristics of screams are more difficult to isolate for study. I think I think in part because they're sort of relative, right? You know, relative to. Uh, like uh, what is somebody's normal vocal range? What is the normal volume you'd be listening and so forth? Mm-hmm. Um, but roughness, you could sort of single out as something that's easy to manipulate in a fairly objective way. And they found that, yes, there was support for the hypothesis that scary movie music mimics qualities found in natural screams, what, what it sounds like when people scream. Uh, so they write in their discussion section, quote, consistent with our hypotheses, we found that both screams and scream-like music exhibited a higher level of roughness and were rated as having more negative valence and a higher arousal level than their non-screaming counterparts. However, contrary to our hypotheses, screams had a higher roughness level than scream-like music. Uh, and so I thought this was a little interesting regarding that last statement. Their finding was counter to something they call the super expressive voice theory, which they credit to uh, Juslin and Vostfial in 2008. And this is a hypothesis that music is, quote, capable of amplifying vocal affective behaviors beyond the capability of the vocal system. So I think this would be the idea that music is sort of a uh, is sort of a, a super, super normal version of human vocalizations, that music plays a role of giving us the power to vocalize beyond what humans can normally vocalize. Um, but uh, So it seems that some horror movie music probably works at least in part by simulating screams, but that uh, horror movie music is not like a super amplification of natural scream effects. Screams themselves are more psychologically powerful than, I don't know, the Halloween theme. Right. Or any, or any scream-like music, uh, which, which that makes sense to me. <laughs> it's like uh, that episode of The Simpsons where um, there is uh, Lieutenant L.T. Smash, and he's making everyone join the Navy with the pop song, Even at Niage, right? Do you remember this one? Uh, I don't think so. uh, What season is this? Oh, this has to be like 13 or 14. Oh, it's, no, it's get Latter-day. out of here, Seth. Come on. <laughs> but he says that the, the Navy uses three tactics for recruiting, subliminal, uh-huh. liminal, and superliminal. <laughs> when they say superliminal, what's that? He yells out the window to Lenny, hey, you, join the Navy. <laughs> oh, that's pretty good. That's superliminal. And I think a scream in this instance would be the superliminal of scary. <laughs> so well, this is scary. Here's a scream. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so here's something I wonder about. Uh, so assuming this holds true, I wonder if scream-like music is 
is in a way a, a way of making scream like stimuli more tolerable for mm. a more sustained period of time. So if you're watching a horror movie and you are just confronted with constant screaming sound effects, I think that would be kind of that would be grating to the point that you would not want to continue watching the movie, even though it might get you in a sort of like high fearful arousal state, like yeah. the movie is trying to to conjure. So maybe music is a is a sort of best of both worlds compromise that it can simulate the neurobiological response we have to the sound of a scream, but without being as grating as actual scream sounds would be. That makes perfect sense. It also, I'm jumping to conclusions now, but it's all tying together. So let's go back to The Shining once again and and think about uh, Midnight, the Stars, and You, okay? That's the 1920s song that plays over mm-hmm. the credits when we're zooming out, or not, not over the credits, over the last shot where we see Jack Torrance in that crowd of like the, hey, 1921, and he's like in the old photo, right? Yeah. So the song playing is Midnight, the Stars, and You. And it's an old 1920s big band song, et cetera, et cetera. And it feels very spooky and very eerie, both because of the context of the film, as well as just the song itself. I wonder if old, like, crackly records, because they do have that interrupted, non-rhythmic, non-intentional, like, crackle and breakup, if that has an element of this replicating a scream. Because it is for the most part, unintentional. Sure, some musicians will intentionally add a crackle to their thing, but they're doing that because they want it to sound spooky. You don't add, you know, phonograph crackle and and hiss if you want something to sound happy. So I wonder if that's adding that scream aspect and making those old things sound extra spooky like we were discussing before. This might not be exactly the same as roughness, uh, but a feature that has been uh, studied in con- in the context of arousing fear, and that is what's called non-linearity, sonic non-linearity. Um, so there's a good bit of research on this other factor, and uh, a major figure in this area of the study of the relationship between fear and, and non-linear sound has been a UCLA biologist named Daniel Blumstein. I was looking at uh, some of his papers and some media reporting about them, as well as I, I watched a, a TED Talk that he did that was uh, pretty interesting, where, that included actually playing some of the sounds he talks about, so that's kind of useful. Um, but uh, Blumstein apparently got into this because he was studying marmots. So he's like a, a biologist and uh, I think ethologist, studies annu- uh, animal behavior. And he tells this story that one day during field work out in the meadows of, I think it was California, somewhere out studying marmots, he's holding a baby marmot in his hand. This is an animal that had just recently emerged from the, the burrow where it had been born. And he says that he heard this sound that just startled him so much he almost dropped the animal. Hmm. Uh, and he, he was kind of surprised that he was so startled because he listens to animal vocalizations all the time as part of his job. Uh, but they, and they don't usually affect him emotionally, but this one did. And one of the characteristics apparently of this distress cry emitted by this little marmot was that it was kind of ragged. 
And he goes on to explain that he started looking at the auditory qualities of a number of different distress vocalizations, not just in marmots, but in all kinds of different animals, primarily mammals, I think. But uh, eventually some of this research was applied to other types of tetrapod animals like birds. Um, uh, There's been at least one study in grackles I, I was reading about. But in essence, the distress vocalizations, the screams of many different animals showed a lot of similarities, uh, auditory similarities. And one of these being what the researchers call non-linearities. And the main thing that he singles out here on, under the heading of non-linearities is noise, sounds beyond the boundaries of a clear vocal signal. Mm. Uh, I almost wonder if we can compare uh, two tones, like a, like a clear version of a tone and then a noisy or distorted version of that tone. Uh, so Blumstein and co-authors have gone on to explain that these non-linearities, the noisy quality of of these distress calls in animals are usually a result of um, the vocal production organs like the vocal cords or in the case of birds, I think this would be the syrinx in, in, a, in a bird's uh, vocal system. But in a mammal like a human, I guess it would be vocal cords. Uh, th- this would be uh, these organs exceeding their capacity. Uh, quite literally analogous, actually, to turning up a speaker until the sound gets distorted. So you, whatever it is, whether that's a you know an electronic speaker or uh, the the organs in your in your throat, when the audio output hardware pushes beyond its normal limits, especially in, I think in terms of volume and maybe also pitch, it produces this noise, these non-linear acoustic features. And apparently Blumstein found evidence of this trend in all kinds of animals. Again, not just marmots, but, you know, meerkats and and other creatures that as they get more acutely distressed, their vocalizations become not just louder, but noisier. Apparently, this is also true of what are known as recruitment calls. Uh, This is a term in animal ethology for sounds that an animal would make to summon other members of its of its species or its group, summon conspecific. So it'll bring allies to you, maybe if you've gotten lost and separated from your group, but often just for protection when you encounter a threat or a predator. Across all different kinds of uh, mammals, the at the crescendo of distress and recruitment calls, there's this tendency to overload the vocal production organs and then thus release these noisier, raspier calls that are full of non-linearities. And they did direct research to test this out on, on marmots and then also on these, these birds called uh, Caribbean grackles. And found that, yeah, the, the, the noisier versions of the alarm calls, the ones that had this more raspy, rough, noisy quality, those were associated with, with increased levels of alarm and would cause the animals to display less relaxation behaviors in response to hearing it. But eventually Blumstein and some colleagues uh, got together to study the sound characteristics of different movie genres to see if this, uh, the, the non-linearities, if the, the noisy qualities of these vocalizations would also be found even in human media, such as horror movies, like horror movies, uh, they found that horror movies do tend to contain, not surprisingly, uh, noisy female scream sounds in them. Right. Um, also interestingly, uh, in their data, they seem to find that sad films, I guess these would be largely drama films tend to include unusually low levels of noisy sounds in them. Huh? Yeah. I wonder if there's a, uh, a conscious effort to, uh, lull you during a drama. Yeah. I don't know. 
but then finally, there was a 2012 study they did uh, where they put together these original compositions, so these little music clips, and they would play these clips for people one way or the other. One would play with very low levels of nonlinear noise, and one would play with very high levels of nonlinear noise. It, I, I listened to a couple of these back to back, and it sounds to me like the 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 ones with high levels of nonlinearity would add things like fuzzy distortion type effects. And so people would rate these in terms of level of arousal and, and valence, positive or negative. And as you might predict, the study found that noisier music causes higher arousal and lower and, and more negative valence. Uh, though interestingly, this study in particular found that this was dependent on visual context. So the music alone did have that predicted effect that the, the noisier it was, the more nonlinearities, the more it might be, I don't know, say effective at making you afraid in a horror movie. Uh, but if you simultaneously p paired those sounds with very benign or banal uh, imagery, like showing people video of somebody sitting drinking a cup of coffee, that appeared to mute the effects of the sound. And so I wonder about that. I mean, I, I think about sort of the opposite ex experience of being able to watch a horror movie where something very benign is going on on screen, but there's ominous music playing and that does sort of give you this sense of like, you know, a little bit of mounting terror or irony about about what's happening. But maybe that's just because, you know, it's the context of watching a horror movie. I think uh, it'd be fascinating. I, I know there are definitely instances of people seeing horror films without realizing that they're horror films. Yeah. And it would be fascinating to see how this data shifts in those instances. Yeah. But anyway, this quality of uh, the nonlinearities, the noisiness quality in the sound really got me thinking back about how I've um, I've never noticed this before, really, but how much horror movie music features some sort of kind of noisy percussion. Uh, so, uh, for instance, I went back and I listened to the original Halloween theme. We all know that melody and the sort of mounting uh, synthesizer bass, but there is also this noisy skittering thing going on during the Halloween theme, this kind of skittering 16th note uh, that that's almost a little bit off tempo or, yeah. or lagging slightly. It sounds kind of like synthesizer hi-hats. I'm not sure exactly what it is. Uh, but this also got me thinking about the difference between horror music and terror music again. I, I think both of them there is a tendency to go for kind of noisier tones when possible. But just something else I was wondering about, I, I didn't find any research to this effect, but I was wondering if horror music in particular, so like think of the strings again in Psycho, uh, horror music at the moment of confrontation tends to sound more like screams uh, because it is communicating a definite and immediate threat. And, you know, it, it makes sense that it mimics a distress call that an animal would make. Whereas terror music is more about uncertainty, and this could be a coincidence, but it actually seems to me that maybe terror music tends to want to mimic the sounds of growling, uh, to mimic the kind of low guttural warning growls of mammals. So if you've ever been like, a, I don't know, approaching a dog that does not want you to approach it. Uh, there's a kind of mounting low thing that's releasing from almost sounds like it's coming down from caves, you know, like uh, 
there, there's a warning of uncertain, possibly impending violence that seems more suited to the terror themes. And, and, and this does make me think more about like the Jaws theme. Yeah. I mean, that, that makes 100% sense to me. Yeah, like, like you said, there, there's no science uh, uh, to back this up currently. But yeah, th- think about a music score, low rumbling, and then violence, violence, violence. That is a dog. Growl. Bark, bark, bark. You know? Yeah, yeah. So kind of uh, with all this information uh, that's, that's been dug up, I feel like we've, we're reaching a conclusion similar to the conclusion that we reached when we were doing our episode on Frison which is that there's some research to indicate a direction leaning towards thoughts that kind of make sense. However, because music is so ethereal and so interpretive and so such a magic trick, it's hard to pin it down, you know? So, mm-hmm. so I, I think we, we've taken big steps towards something with understanding, but I, I don't think we can ever really nail down art (laughs) right well i mean it's hard to give uh you know i think sometimes people want to give very clear biological logic to to things that are complex in humans culture like art and uh i think there the lines are not usually that clear but i think you can identify interesting tendencies yes so you know you're, you're not going to find a evolutionary biology reason that explains the melody of the theme to the shining but you might well find that there are some broad tendencies in horror music that would be uh that would be pretty well predicted by certain kinds of things about what the the kinds of animals we are and so i think that might well correlate with things like a scream like glissandi of violins in a horror movie when you know when the killer comes out with the knife and the granny wig on uh or or the the growl like mounting terror music uh but yeah, of course, there's not a biological or deterministic code for what kind of art develops. You know, there's there's just too much. Uh, there are too many inputs on it. At the very least, uh, anyone listening right now can think about their favorite horror score and pin down the differences between the terror songs, the horror songs, and the eerie songs. Mm-hmm. That's a fun game. <laughs> oh, well, what do you what do you think about Chariots of Pumpkins? My this has got to be <laughs> one of my all time favorites. Uh, the the score for Halloween three is just the best, and and that may come up again on this podcast quite soon. Yes, um, my first instinct is to say terror. However, I'm leaning also towards eerie. I, yeah, I I think it just kind of sets the mood. I mean, yeah. Chariots of Pumpkins doesn't doesn't really make me tense up. It Instead, it, it kind of puts me in a in a in a jolly uh, <laughs> in a jolly computer witchcraft mindset. It just makes me feel like ah, a a banshee virus has infected the synthesizer bank. <laughs> yes, fascinating. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, um, it's October, so I'm sure many people listening are uh, spending the month watching horror films. While you're watching some, start thinking to yourself, horror versus terror versus eerie and uh, what they're doing to your brain. Okay, well, I think that's got to wrap it up here. Uh, God, uh, this one also turned into a long episode. We, we, You know, we can end up talking about horror movies and horror music uh, for quite some time, huh? But hey, Seth, one, one more time, you want to remind people where they can find your new music podcast. Yeah. Uh, if you like listening to me talk about music, go look up Rusty Needles Record Club wherever you find podcasts. It's very easy to find. It's, uh, every Friday, there's a new episode. Uh, when this is a brand new episode dropping, there are at least two episodes for you to listen to. And more will come every Friday after that. Amazing. Check it out. Rusty Needles Record Club. 
wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> uh, as for Stuff to Blow Your Mind, Rob's going to be back with me for our next core episode, so definitely tune in for that. And uh, it's going to be a blast. We're so excited about October. We've been lighting candles and brewing potions for months now. Um, <laughs> anyway, so, uh, uh, yeah, I guess that, that about does it. So uh, if you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you know where to find us. We're on anywhere you get your podcast. This is the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast. Uh, we're offering pretty much uh, daily uh, episodes now. So on Mondays, we do listener mail. On Tuesdays and Thursdays, we do classic core episodes of the show, which tend to be about uh, science. Often intersecting with some kind of cultural topic, uh, maybe with uh, with history or monsters or literature or something. On Wednesdays, we do a short form episode called The Artifact. On Fridays, we run an episode from the vault. Some, I guess, generally an episode of yesteryear. Uh, but uh, but yeah, I guess that's it. So if you uh, would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, oh, and uh, as always, of course, big thanks to Seth for editing this one, even though he's on it. Thanks for joining me and for editing. Uh, the, this this monster episode, uh, but uh, but yeah, if you would like to get in touch with us on this uh, uh, in response to this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stuff to blow your mind Stuff to blow your mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.